Hello, I'm Claire White, and joining me is Kyle Willoughby. Hello! And this is Dragon's Sexy Robots and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. We are here to discuss new nerd creations, how they were made, and explore the roots of the characters and the stories. Today, we're talking about The Incredibles 2. Yeah, or Incredibles 2. Incredibles 2. Yeah, there's actually no the in there. Yeah, I, we I looked that up looked earlier. Up. <laughs> I will be discussing the history of families, and Kyle is going to discuss... I'm going to talk about Brad Bird, the writer and director, and kind of his journey and path through life. Um, and just a quick synopsis of Incredibles 2. Incredibles 2 is the most recent animated film from Disney and Pixar, and it was written and directed by Brad Bird, who I mentioned. Incredibles 2 picks up right where the original Incredibles leaves off, um, kind of right in the midst of action. So both movies concern a family of supers, or people with superpowers, led by a mother and a father who are retired superheroes. And this is in a world where being a superhero and having powers has been outlawed. Now, Incredibles 2 concerns the retired superheroes trying to change the public perception of people with powers to make superheroes legal again. The movie focuses on the matriarch of the family, Elastigirl, as the new face of the superhero movement. Um, and the movie stars Holly Hunter, Samuel Jackson, Craig T. Nelson, Sarah Val, and Huck Milner. So, I guess I'll just start getting into yeah, it. Yeah, let's get into it, Claire. Let's do it. Families. Nuclear or... Green energy. What are we on now? All of the above. <laughs> so I was actually totally stumped and freaked out when I realized I'd basically signed myself up to do a history segment on The Incredibles. Because while The Incredibles is a superhero movie, its structure is so different from any other that I've seen. It's such a unique story with a unique v- viewpoint and it doesn't actually follow a lot of the tropes. So I did what I usually do when I'm stumped is I went and I read a lot of interviews by the creator or Brad Bird trying to maybe find a way into his mind and get to the center of the idea he was exploring. And you might talk about this later, but in different interviews, Brad Bird said he didn't actually know much about superheroes when he made The Incredibles and wasn't even particularly interested in them. But what he was interested in was exploring the family dynamic. So, Kyle, when you think of the American family, what do you think? What roles do the parents play in the American family? I mean, your your typical roles, which isn't what I think of as the family, but the trope roles would be like the father breadwinner, the stay-at-home mom, and two perfect kids. But that's not necessarily what I think of the American family. I don't necessarily think of that anymore, and I don't think of that for my future when I have a family. But growing up, I really always thought that the family was like a mom and a dad. The dad went to work, and the mom stayed home with the kids. And even though my family kind of did that, my mom was always working too. So it it doesn't even—it was just so ingrained in me. That is what I thought. Yeah. So— In this movie, we have an American quote-unquote nuclear family, or a mom, a dad, and three kids, and they seem stereotypical, albeit with superpowers. But the Incredibles are different. They're struggling financially. Dad thinks he should be the one to go back to work, but it's mom who gets the dream job, has to leave the kids to go support them. Dad must contend with housework, helping with homework, helping with crushes, and putting the baby to sleep. And those are some of the best parts of the movie. Oh, totally. (laughs) And it actually really feels true to life. Yeah. And it is the opposite of what I grew up thinking. Of like, leave it to beaver. Yeah, Yeah, of what the family should be. So I thought I'd take a look at families and how we came to the idea of this standard and why it's so prevalent. The idea of family, or kinship, has existed in one way or another for as long as humans have been around. 
in varying structures, which I'm not going to get into. That's another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to talk about the Stone Age humans living in groups? Do you? No. Okay. I mean, I do. But I just don't know anything about it. <laughs> not today. <laughs> the rise of agricultural societies and the idea of heirs and passing down belongings and land made marriage a contractual relationship instead of a kinship. And as civilizations grew, it became more regulated by religious and state authorities. The quote-unquote nuclear family, or what we would recognize as close to the American ideal, if you want to call it that, goes back as far as the 13th century in England and parts of Northern Europe, where it was common for a family to be an isolated household with a husband, wife, and children, sometimes parents, but they usually didn't live long enough for that. Oh, you were like like grandparents? Sort of yeah, thing? sometimes yeah, grandparents, yeah. I should say. Okay. But that was so rare, I think yeah. only 10% of households had, had grandparents because oh, wow. people didn't live as long. Yeah. The bride and groom tended to get married later in life since they had to wait till they were financially stable. And because of this, they had less children. That's really interesting because I feel like the the what, when you think about people getting married back in the day, you're like, oh, the 12-year-old girl is now married. Right. To well, this is also like per the time period. This yeah. is also being compared to, say, Southern and Eastern European families, which were more of the extended family structure where the husband and wife would live with all sorts of relatives. Gotcha. So maybe later meant like— 20, yeah, 18 yeah, yeah. instead of Instead of like 15. 14. Yeah. yeah. Men were by law the legal head of families and had control over their wives and children. They could claim any money or property the women owned. Women were expected to rear the children and manage the household. Kids were a part of the economic structure of the family and expected to work to help sustain it. The Industrial Revolution and the migration of people to the cities is argued to actually have weakened the family by making it less necessary for survival. Really? Yeah, I thought it would be the opposite. Yeah. Food that was once produced by families was now made in factories. Institutions like hospitals and schools fulfilled functions that families used to. It also provided jobs for women, which gave them more freedom and allowed them to reevaluate the value of marriage. Also, around the time of the Industrial Revolution came the Enlightenment and the idea that life was about the pursuit of happiness. And this is where the idea of marrying for love instead of marrying for financial stability or gain became an accepted notion. Who needs love? Give me financial stability any day. Oh, I hope you live by that, Kyle. <laughs> Don't tell my girlfriend. <laughs> she's, she's just there to financially she's support you. Financially support. As I mentioned earlier, before the 20th century, women could not own property. They could not enter into contracts. They could not sue or be sued. And husbands had a duty to provide for them. Now, this is in England or this is generally This is also in America. in America. I'm talking about America. Western okay. societies yeah, gotcha. gravitating towards American. Yeah, yeah. I know that the, this family structure was certainly not prevalent in many African, Asian, yeah. um, uh, Arabic places, cultures. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm talking about family in context of the Incredibles. Thank you for clarifying. I meant to do that earlier. In the 19th century, married women started to gain rights. Um, in America, it happened slowly, state by state, starting in 1809 in Connecticut, where a law passed allowing women to write wills. Really? The government also started regulating schooling, child labor laws, and allowed widows' pensions so poor children could stay with their moms. This made the support of a family unit become more of an idea, not a necessity. With that and the idea of marriage based on choice and love, the divorce rate tripled in the later 19th century. Oh, right? really? Who knew? That's really interesting. With this high divorce rate and many people choosing not to marry, because like I said, 
they no longer needed to be part of a family to survive, some feared that that this meant the demise of families, especially during the Depression where marriages and birth rates fell dramatically because people just couldn't afford to. But in the late 40s and 50s, America experienced an economic boom accompanied by the Cold War with Russia and mass migration to the suburbs. These all gave rise to the idea of the American nuclear family. It was lauded as what made America superior to our communist enemies and was encouraged by TV shows and PSAs designed to teach families how to behave appropriately. Also, the rise of labor unions and the demand that men be paid a fair wage made this more attainable for more households. That's super creepy that there were government PSAs about why this is the way things have to be. That's right. like really George Orwell. Isn't it? But yeah. it was also what America felt that it was putting forward that made it so much better than yeah. Russia. Yeah. We had these stable, happy households with these families that could a man could support his wife and children. And women couldn't go to space because their bodies apparently couldn't take it. But no, Russian no. women could go to space. But they weren't superior. <laughs> they weren't. So in these families, men were expected to provide for the family because they were believed to be naturally aggressive and rational, which were good traits for the workplace. Women were believed to be more submissive and nurturing. (laughs) I didn't expect that to get a laugh. So we're expected to raise the children and manage the household. (laughs) It's just so scary. Like hearing that, like all this stuff, like these things that we all kind of know were the reason behind nuclear families, like said out loud. It's like, oh yeah, this is kind of gross. They were supposed to be good things. (laughs) I know. Also, they were changing ideas about children and their role in the family. Instead of assets that contributed to the family's labor force, they were now the center of the family and raising them became the unit's primary objective. They were seen as belonging more to mothers than to fathers and being a good mother meant researching child development and putting a lot of effort into making sure her children were socialized. Because America, at the time, was the leading economic force and culturally pervasive, (laughs) the American family became the standard around the world, and it was proof of the success of capitalism, and this is what all countries should aspire to. It's because we put it in all our TV shows and then beam them to all mm-hmm. places all over the world. But even the TV networks were also trying to appeal yeah. to the government to put yeah. forth messages that special interest groups would approve of. Oh, like nuclear family special interest groups, I guess? Right, yeah, like Christian oh, families, yeah, yeah, yeah. And scenes then, like, like the McCarthy people era, the, yeah, people, people were scared. Yeah. Okay. So I should also note here that the nuclear family, while held up as an ideal, was only available to a certain class that it could that could afford one breadwinner. So while the media might have made it seem that all Americans in the 50s came from nuclear family households, that wasn't the case. There were many poorer families that couldn't afford just one breadwinner or who came from single-parent households. I think, uh, I mean, and you've seen part of it, Brad Bird's The Iron Giant. It's, yeah. a, it's it's about a family in the 50s, except it's a single mom and a, and a son, no father. And it's never mentioned, like, where the father is, but they're poor and, like, struggling. Um, and it's, like, during this time of nuclear family. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of just them two, this, this mother and the son. The contrast to yeah. it. Well, that's a good segue. Because in its height, the nuclear American family continued to change. In the 60s, there were medical advances in contraception, including the invention of the pill, No-fault divorce was slowly adopted by different states across America, and attitudes about women's roles started changing in the 60s as more women started entering the workforce. 
as life became more expensive, it took more than one salary to support a family. It certainly did. By 2008, the U.S. Department of Labor claimed that women made up 50% of the labor force and were on equal footing with men as far as how many were in it. Yeah. Today, people get married later than they used to. Cohabitation is common. 20% of adults, a record number, have never married. Gay marriage is legal. More than half of American kids are raised in non-nuclear families. And in nuclear families, most people say they expect both partners to work and both partners to share responsibilities in child-rearing. I don't think it's a coincidence that one of the most popular TV shows recently is Modern is Family. Modern Family, yeah, which is a bunch of, like... Modern families, not Which is about families, a bunch of different households, a yeah. divorced household with yeah. a biological child, but also children from other marriages, a gay couple with an adopted children, and a nuclear family where both work, the husband and wife, yeah. and both share the responsibilities of child-rearing. Yeah. But what I think The Incredibles does really well is take this idea of the nuclear family and the expectations that I think we as Americans still place on our nuclear families and show how it's so hard yeah. and how it's evolved yeah. and how different people in the family can contribute to different yeah. aspects of it. And they do break it down, too, and show that, like, it, each each person in this nuclear unit can can do whatever, you know? Like, right. Like, Elastigirl, the mom, ends up being kind of the face and going off to work while uh, Mr. Incredible, the dad, stays home and, like, his struggles of trying to, like— just keep his family together. together but also like, how he wants to be out working yeah. and having fun. Yeah. But he has to raise the family. And Elastigirl feels guilty for not being home with her kids. Yeah. But actually, she's making more money than yeah. he is. So yeah. it makes sense for her to go and work. Yeah. No, it's 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 really cool. And I, I never thought of that of Brad Bird, like, in his thoughts about the family unit. But you're right. Like, looking at some of his past work, it, it's all... It, all is very family focused. It's family focused. Kind of like taking down uh, and like I don't, I don't norms, know deconstructing. Yeah, the what norms you would think of, of what the American nuclear family yeah. should be. Also, there's a thing. I think there's. I want to get into it in opinions, but I think there's something to be said about the superpowers of all the people in that family. <laughs> oh yeah, and what they like symbolize because they do kind of sim. They kind of follow tropes. Oh, totally. That are that are interesting. But well, we'll get to that later. That's my segment, Kyle. So that was awesome, Claire. Thanks, I did, man. That was really fascinating Aww. about family. I um, want to hear about Brad Bird, yeah, your gonna, boy. I know. I'm going to talk about Brad Bird, my favorite. He made, like, one one of my favorite childhood movies ever, which was The Iron Giant. So I've always been, I've been a fan of his for a long time. Um, so, yeah, a little bit about Brad Bird. He was born in Montana, and from a very young age, he wanted to be an animator. Uh, when he was 10 years old, he saw the film The Jungle Book in theaters and was blown away. Uh, this is a quote from him. He says, I had seen a lot of animated films, and I kind of knew that there was a lot of drawing involved. But it wasn't until I saw The Jungle Book that I realized that someone had to figure out how a stuffy panther would move. <laughs> that meant they not only had to differentiate a cat from any other kind of animal, but a specific kind of cat, a large cat. And not just a large cat, but a large cat with a stuffy personality. Something snapped in me, and I thought, that's someone's job, to do that. And maybe being an adult is going to be really exciting. <laughs> maybe it doesn't have to be a drag. <laughs> and it's true. I, I watched some old clips of Bagheera from The Jungle Book, and he moves like a like a snooty panther. Like, he moves like a cat, but he's also got his, he's a his nose man. is upturned a little bit. He's British, and he's just <laughs> a little bit too good for everyone around him. And and that's really cool. And this quote was from a Boston Globe piece by Ed uh, Simkis, which was released on June 7th, 2018. 
at age 11, a friend of a friend of their families was able to get Bird a tour of Disney's animation studio. So this is when Bird was 11 years old. Um, and Brad Bird met Milt Call, one of the legendary animators from Disney's Golden Age. This is one of the guys who is referred to as the one of the nine old men of Disney who kind of helped make Disney what it is. Uh, Milt Call worked on and created characters for Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, Pinocchio, Bambi, Alice in Wonderland, Cinderella, Peter Pan, lots, like all through Disney's Golden Age. He was the, one of the, the wow. big animators, maybe the most influential of all the Disney animators. Um, and Bird told Milt Kyle that he wanted to be an animator when he grew up. Uh, Bird then spent three years working on a 15-minute-long animated short, which he then sent to, to Kyle. And Milt Kyle was so impressed that he took Bird on and became his mentor. Um, and he helped Bird to acquire a Disney scholarship, a full ride to California Institute of the Arts for Animation. Nice. Because Bird was from kind of nowhere, Montana, and his family then moved to nowhere, Oregon, so it was probably a, an opportunity that he wouldn't have been able to, to get amazing. had he not met this yeah, guy and gotten the scholarship. Really, that the guy got it for him, yeah, too. Yeah. It's really cool. And, and the, just that he made an animated short between the ages of 11 and 14. That is impressive. It's like, he really, this is something this kid really wants to do. Uh, so in animation school, Bird befriended fellow classmate John Lasseter, who would be famous or become famous for founding Pixar and creating the early Pixar hits of Toy Story, A Bug's Life, and, and Toy Story 2, Lasseter would also become infamous for sexual misconduct at the workplace, yeah. and he was removed as head of Pixar. That was really recently, This right? month, yeah. yeah. Was, I think it was on my birthday. June 8th was when oh. Disney's like, yeah, we're, we're getting rid of John Lasseter. It's Kyle's birthday, John Lasseter. You gotta go. <laughs> yeah, you gotta go. <laughs> no more of this stuff going on. So after Bird graduated, he was hired to work for Disney, and he spent time there in the late 70s and, and very early 80s as an, as an animator working on The Fox and the Hound before leaving Disney, frustrated at the direction it was heading. So Brad was was upset. He thought that Disney was getting away from their golden years, like the where Milt Kyle had worked um, and the great animators of the past. He thought they were, they were playing it safe. And this is a quote from another interview he did. He says, Disney at this time was pared down. They were making one film every three years rather than a film every year or year and a half, as they had at Disney's height. Walt had been gone for more than a decade, and the old guys were leaving. The company's thought process was not, we have all this amazing machinery, how do we use it to make exciting things? We could go to Mars in this rocket ship. <laughs> it was, we don't understand Walt Disney at all. We don't understand what he did. Let's not screw it up. Let's just preserve this rocket ship. Going somewhere new in it might damage it. Um, and this is from an interview from the McKinsey and Company's quarterly uh, corporate magazine. Oh. <laughs> which I was able to find online for free. <laughs> <laughs> so Bird moved away from film animation because he thought that they weren't, you know, Disney was, was not taking risks anymore. They weren't trying anything new. And he moved into television animation where he felt like more new ground was being explored. His first animated directorial was the Family Dog episode of Steven Spielberg's Amazing Stories Anthology, which is this anthology series of, of just short little stories. Some of the, I don't think they were all animated, but there were a bunch I've that were animated. I've never heard of that. Um, so on this Family Dog episode, he had help from a another disgruntled Disney animator alum named Tim Burton, who had le also left Disney in the 80s because he felt frustrated and creatively stifled. <laughs> <laughs> so Bird would move on to, to greater things even than Family Dog when he was tasked with helping develop this bizarre cartoon show for Fox called The Simpsons. He helped 
Yeah, he developed The Simpsons. Holy crap. Uh, he would write and direct two Simpsons episodes, but he remained as an executive consultant for the show for eight seasons. He cashing was one of the, those paychecks. Yeah, cashing those, <laughs> cashing those Simpsons paychecks. So in the, in the 90s, Bird was really killing it in animation, by my humble estimation. <laughs> helping not only just to create The Simpsons, but also helping develop the animation style of The Rugrats and King of the Hill. Which were like, uh, when you think of 90s cartoons, I feel like those are three of the biggest. Yeah. They come to my mind. Um, and Bird would top... All, from all different demographics. Yeah, from all different demographics. It's true. So Bird would top off the 90s with his first feature-length directorial debut uh, with The Iron Giant, which he wrote, directed, and animated. And this was for Warner Brothers. Now, Warner Brothers in the 90s had decided to try and cash in on the Disney animated movie market. Mm-hmm. Which seems like a, like a thing Warner Brothers does. It's worked out lately for a lot of studios. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally has. Um, but the Warner Brothers kind of lost interest in making this movie about halfway through, and it was very... I it heard the marketing marketed. was yeah. not Was non-existent. Very good. Yeah. yeah. So The Iron Giant was critically praised for both its writing and its design, but the movie flopped at the box office. It was, however, good enough to impress John Lasseter, who was the head of Pixar, who then asked Bird to join them over at Pixar. I mean, Lasseter told Bird that he was worried about them, this Pixar, becoming complacent with their success. Toy Story, A Bug's Life, Toy Story 2, Finding Nemo. And they wanted someone new and experimental like Bird there to shake things up. And Bird was blown away by this, especially coming from a studio that had only seen massive success. I was thinking that's the opposite of the Disney ship that he was running from Ex- in the 80s. Exactly. They're like, oh, we're, we're, ha- we're having success, but we don't want to get just like, just follow a formula. We want to do new things. So Bird pitched his idea for a family of retired superheroes that eventually became The Incredibles. Now, The Incredibles was very much a new endeavor for Pixar, having never done a movie that really heavily featured human characters. <laughs> It, they're not. It's It's been toys. It's been bugs. It's right. been fish. Uh, Bird apparently gathered up all the malcontent animators at Pixar, people with one foot out the door and who, th- who were thinking about leaving, and he brought them on to work out how to tackle realistic animations of people that don't look terrifying. Because if you look at the old Pixar films like Toy Story, you can see that the, the people at Pixar had no idea how to animate humans. Andy's baby sister is... <laughs> super freaky and Sid the neighbor kid who's albeit is evil, evil is also super freaky and Andy's mom just has these dead eyes that's so funny <laughs> they're terrifying to look at it's not a big deal because you focus on the toys right but it's, that's so it's bad I looked it up you I was would like, expect Whoa. more from Pixar yeah. <laughs> so they had to invent new methods of computer animation to conquer complicated problems that had never been tried before uh, such as the physics of Violet's hair I saw this test footage of them trying to work out Violet's hair, and every time she would move, it would just, like, go up in a static frenzy, crazy. Like, that was really hard technology yeah, to, I can imagine. to implement at the time. You don't think about that when you watch it. No, you don't. But and it I moves feel like really the animators well. don't necessarily get the credit for that that they yeah, might deserve. They don't. they don't. But they deserve a lot of credit because it seems like it's really difficult. Uh, Bird was also obsessed with the way characters moved and how movement and body type can inform the audience of a character's personality. This goes back to Bagheera from the Jungle Book moving like Mm -hmm. a snooty panther would. Yeah. Like a snooty British panther. Violet moves like a teenage girl. (laughs) Violet moves like a teenage girl. Violet's always shrinking. Her shoulders are hunched and her hair is covering part of her face. Dash, the son who has super speed, his hair is constantly windblown back. 
Mr. Incredible has this huge hulking form, but when he's at his job in the original Incredibles movie, he's constantly hunched over and miserable. <laughs> and you can see in the bodies that like you you learn more about these characters by the way they move and the way they look. Now, The Incredibles would go on to do very well at the box office and would net Bradbird his first Oscar for Best Animated Film and a nomination for the Best Original Screenplay. Bird's next job would be to take over on the work-in-progress Ratatouille, the movie about a rat who aspires to be a chef. <laughs> Which is such a weird concept. It's such a weird concept. And and Bird didn't create it. When Bird came on, he completely rewrote the script and scrapped years of work that animators and the team had done for I it. I think that's Pixar's known for that, though. Yeah, yeah. Now, under previous direction, the animators had been told to figure out a way to make the rats walk on two legs, uh, to make them more human-like and less gross for audience members, to see these rats scurrying around everywhere. Uh, and when Bird arrived, he took that out, saying that the rats had to walk on all fours except the main character, Remy, who would sometimes walk on two legs to try to be more human-like, but at low moments would go back to four, becoming more rat-like. Once again, like movement and body mm, like yeah. is really important to the character. Ratatouille would also serve as a sort of allegory for the golden age of Disney, or what Brad Bird thought of of the golden age of Disney, and kind of a biopic struggle of Bird himself. So in Ratatouille, Auguste Gusteau is the famous chef who creates the restaurant, and that restaurant had a golden age and was amazing, but when he died... It fell into mediocrity. Oh, and know. you need a rat to come in and, and you, fix it up. An you, outsider. You needed an outsider from somewhere strange to come back and like help Montana? fix it. And that's one of one of the lines in, in the movie is there's the snooty food critic who at the end meets the uh, spoilers for Ratatouille. I hope no one's offended. <laughs> who at the end see, meets the rat and sees that this delicious food he had just eaten was was made by a rat. And he says, he says... Uh, not anyone can be a great artist, but a great artist can be from anywhere. Aww, saying I that love like, that. yeah, this like dude from Montana was able to like pursue his dreams of animation and help save a great restaurant or a great a great studio. Studio. Yeah, I haven't seen Ratatouille since it came out. Yeah, it's I haven't seen it in a while either. I bet it holds up. Well, I though. have a distinct memory though of my roommate. Uh, right after we moved to New York City, we watched it for the first time and just hearing like squeals of <laughs> laughter coming from her room. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's so good. It's so good. And Bird would net another Oscar for Best Animated Film with Ratatouille and another nomination for Best Original Screenplay. Uh, Bird would step away from animation for a time, directing the fourth Mission Impossible movie. <laughs> I saw that. Which was a box office success, which I haven't seen actually. And Disney's Tomorrowland, which was a box office flop before returning to I remember to the hype too. around Tomorrowland. Yeah. It's like, oh, and Brad Bird. It's Brad Bird's on it. Yeah. He didn't write the script for Tomorrowland. That was Damon Lindelof of mm, so let's blame Lost him. Fame, the guy oh. who maybe got lost, lost. <laughs> <laughs> or made it great. Or made it great. Or made it great. Who knows? So when asked why Incredibles 2 took so long, Bird says he just wasn't ready, and he also says that Pixar is the kind of studio that will wait until a creator has inspiration and is ready, instead of forcing out endless cash-grabbing sequels. Bird has this to say about his own movies. Uh, There's a quote from that uh, McKinsey Company article. Speaking personally, I want my films to make money, but money is just fuel for the rocket. What I really want to do is go somewhere. I don't want to just collect more fuel. Um, And Bird has been recently accused of sneaking objectivist Ayn Randian philosophical <laughs> leanings into his films. I also saw that when I was yeah. doing my research on the message behind <laughs> The Incredibles. <laughs> Which is an accusation that he denies, and there are tons of articles arguing both for and against this. Uh, there's an, a great Atlantic article by David Sims that I, I really liked and thought was 
was the better one of the better ones that I've read. So we'll post that um, on Twitter and Facebook. As for box office earnings, The Incredibles two has uh, passed five hundred million dollars worldwide, and it has a ninety one percent on Rotten Tomatoes. What do we, I mean? What do we think of it? Claire, that's the most important part. I know. That's what Brad Bird's waiting to that's hear. That's what Brad Bird's waiting to hear. Uh, I loved it. Loved it. Yeah, it was great. I thought the first one was great. But I actually haven't seen the first one since it came out in 2004. And I was graduating high school at the time. Yeah. So I think I wasn't able to appreciate it for, you know, the family dynamics. Yeah. And what it was saying about a family being together. Because yeah. I, I was remembering as I was reading articles about it that the parents fight. But that's okay. They do. They do that's fight. okay. Yeah, they're struggling, and they're trying to work out their place in this family and how to best raise their children. Yeah. Um, and especially as I'm older now, and I start thinking about maybe one day having my own family, I really appreciate this very honest portrayal. Yeah. Of an American family. It it is. It is. It it's such a good honest portrayal, and they do have problems, and they do argue and fight and get mad at each other. But at the end of the day, they're still a family, and they still work it out. Yeah. And they still talk to each other and, and figure out a solution. And I think that's really nice and maybe something that's lacking in today's I, society. It's maybe not in families, but. <laughs> right, but in the people. portrayal of families. I think TV yeah. tends to do a better job of that. At least yeah. mainstream TV Definitely. tends to be a more accurate portrayal of a family and has done that for, uh, for decades. Yeah, yeah, for a while. Um, you loved The Incredibles? It was so good. I loved the first one. I thought this one was was just as good. Left picked up right where the first one left off in the middle of the action. It was amazing. I loved hearing and seeing all those characters again. Mm-hmm. And the villain in this, I really liked. Yeah, you're you're on her side. I'm right? kind of on the villain side. Who is uh, maybe tentatively not into the idea of superheroes being able to exist and how scary yeah. they could be if they were free yeah, agents and went exactly. off on their own, which is exactly. something that superhero movies do always grapple with. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, and I don't, I don't know. I just thought like Brad Bird. I haven't seen Tomorrowland, and I haven't seen so his one of his flops, and I haven't seen um, uh, Mission Impossible. But it's great. His his movies that I have seen are, are so good, and they affect me so much. I love the Iron Giant. So I watched half of the Iron Giant in preparation for this movie, and Kyle always talks about how it's one of his favorite movies. And then my research just took too long. Yeah. I just didn't have time to finish it. But I intend to finish it this weekend. So by the time this podcast airs, I will have finished will have the, Iron, finished the Giant. Iron Giant. Yay. But I was really enjoying it. Yeah. And I think, I mean, like, especially after watching Ready Player One, where the Iron, Iron Giant, Giant is yeah. so featured, yeah. it was fun to actually see the original. There was an interview with Brad Bird where they were like, "What do you? how do you feel about seeing the Iron Giant in a Spielberg film? That was awesome, right? Did, did Spielberg ask you for it? And... And he was like, I don't, you must not know Steven Spielberg. He didn't ask for anything. <laughs> he doesn't need to ask. <laughs> he doesn't need to ask. We just, we are flattered. <laughs> yeah, I'm flattered. It was awesome. I didn't think it was going to be as big of a thing, it was as big of a deal in it. But when I saw how much screen time it got, I was very flattered. <laughs> Which is true. I mean, I don't know. Like his, as, as far as, I want to talk a little bit about him maybe putting Ayn Randian philosophies into his I will talk about it, Kyle. Movies, because I don't think that's accurate Well, at talk all. about Ayn Randian philosophies. So Ayn Rand or Ayn Rand, I might be saying her name wrong. Uh, she, she the was internet a, will tell you. The internet don't will worry. Tell me. She was an a author in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and she invented this philosophy called objectivism, which is the, the idea behind it is the virtue of selfishness, that you, in order to benefit 
you know, society is, is benefited by people being extremely selfish and pursuing, pursuing exactly what they want. And that a lot of times governments get in the way of great people advancing things mm. in pursuit of what they want. And it is very, um, it is a very elitist. Capitalist. Capitalist, yes. She was, she was born in, in Soviet Russia. So it is very elitist and very capitalist. And, um, and it's, especially nowadays, it's, it's, a, it's a hot topic. But I don't think the people who are accusing uh, Brad Bird of putting Ayn Rand into his movies have read her or read her recently. One, one uh, piece I read, which is from the Houston Chronicle, uh, was mentioned, you know, it was very against, it was very accusatory of Brad Bird, you know, like kind of poisoning the minds of people with Ayn Rand, sneaking it, in, sneaking it into a kid's movie, and mentions like, I read Atlas Shrugged when I was in high school, I, or maybe I read it, I can't remember if I finished it or not. And to me that says like, you don't know what you're talking about then. Like if A, if, if Atlas Shrugged is the only Ayn Rand book you read, <laughs> and you don't even remember if you did finish it, then you probably shouldn't be able to speak to this. <laughs> Do you think that he's infusing? No, I think there's. I think mostly he's he's putting like a a, a pride of self in his movies because right. he came from a from a pretty obscure background and he's made something of himself and he's a perfectionist. So I think he puts that in there. That's very different than objectivism, which is just pursue your own selfish desires. Because in his movies. The moral is often like people who are super and really powered, they give back to the community. They help the people around right. them. That's kind of their well, that's point. That's very capitalist. Yeah. And actually quite – and I mean Anne Rand, like you were saying, Bert, you know, has a lot of capitalist leanings. Yeah. I was also going to say that idea also ties in very strongly with the nuclear family structure yeah. where, yeah. you know, your focus is primarily this unit and putting them first. Yeah. But in in his movies, like the like in Incredibles, they're they're really powerful and they want to use their powers not to benefit themselves, even though it's doing something they like to do, but to, to benefit the people around them. It's yeah. not a purely selfish desire, which I think is is the primary motive in objectivism, especially hmm. in Atlas Shrugged. Right. Well, but the movie does ex- does say that it might be bad. If it explores the idea the, the, that it yeah. might be bad if superheroes use their powers because they might just pursue their own selfish aims. Yeah. Well, which I, is the villain is kind of against superheroes for that reason. I had interpreted the villain's motivation as being more afraid of people getting complacent, always getting saved by superheroes right. and not making the right choice because they think someone's going to come save them. I think it's a little bit of both. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to talk about was the powers of the family and how they kind of reflect the roles in that family. Oh, completely. And how cool that is. Yeah. That the the dad is super strong and can take a hit, and he's like kind of the the patriarch, you know, mm-hmm. normal nuclear family father figure. The mom's power is is flexibility. So she, can she can juggle can, multiple tasks. She can juggle multiple tasks. She can adapt to situations and be flexible. The the young the young son is just a ball of energy, super fast, and is super has super speed. The teenage daughter the teenage, wants to be invisible. The teenage daughter wants to be invisible and can, do shields. And can put put up force fields yeah. to keep people away from her. I just I mean it's a little tropey, but I it works it for some reason. It plays very well. Like, yeah, 
Which hopes are great when they're done well. Yeah, when they're cre- when they're done creatively, and and uh, you know they add they do. I feel like the powers where the powers sit do add a lot to the movie and like help reinforce this idea of family in it. So the Incredibles, we recommend. Oh, oh hell yes, yes for See the, the entire family, right? For the whole family, a yeah. family movie about family. Oh, it's it's amazing. It's really good. Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm Claire White. And I'm Kyle Willoughby. And we are Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsrapodcast.com. We would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. You can find the show on Twitter at dsrapodcast. I can be found on Twitter at Along With Claire. That's C-L-A-I-R-E. I can be found at Klex303, that's K-L-E-X-303. And you can find our producer James at James Bowie Jr., that's James, F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R, on Twitter. You can learn more about The Incredibles and Families and Brad Bird on our Facebook page and Twitter, where we will be posting the articles we used in some of our show notes. Our producer, who can run very fast. He's very, he can also talk very fast. And talk very fast, is James Bowie. Our logo is done by Patty Highland, who definitely has super strength. Definitely. She's not flexible, but sturdy and strong. (laughs) Our theme was composed by Pete Rowan, who has the superpower of drinking so many creamy alcoholic drinks. He's really good at drinking milky drinks in yeah, the hot summer. So I don't good. know how he doesn't throw up all the time. Once again, this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a nerd manual. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks when we talk about Magic the Gathering.